Hi, my name is Jenny, and I'm part of the creative arts team. And I'll be reading. Um, <laughs> I can't see you. But hi. Um, um, I'll be reading Luke 12:13 to 21. Uh, someone in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." Jesus replied, "Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you?" Then he said to them, "Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed." Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. Good morning, everyone. Um, before we jump in today, I have a, one more announcement that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, a few years ago when we started City Music, which is um, our uh, initiative to write original worship songs, um, original music for us, um, it started and will always be with you in mind with all of us as a community together. Um, it is the goal to write prayers, um, worship, music, lyric, and melody for us to sing together, to unify us, unify our praise together. And so with that in mind as our lens, one of the things that we have been hoping for, believing for, working towards is to have live recordings with your voice on them, um, to record our worship together as a church community. And next Sunday morning, we are going to be recording our very first live city music tracks right here in this room. We're so excited. We're gonna be recording our worship. We'll have a normal service, but we're gonna be recording our worship service um, with your voices. So a couple of things come next week, all right? Everybody come. Um, be here and be ready to sing and ready to worship. We want to hear your voice. We were not gonna pick up your voice individually. That was one of my daughter's concerns. They were like, <laughs> I'm not gonna hear you directly, all right, but the crowd, us worshiping together as a crowd. So we're so, so excited about next Sunday. Several years ago, there was a filmmaker who arrived in Pamplona, Spain in order to uh, shoot a film about hundreds of young men wearing white trousers and red waistbands running away from bulls, trying to avoid getting trampled, skewered, or gored to death. We all know this as the famous running of the bulls. Upon arriving, he stumbled upon a completely surreal scene. He found thousands of naked joggers, no bull in sight, with shoes on their feet, fake horns on their head, and nothing in between. It was the annual protest by animal rights groups known simply as the running of the nudes. As any filmmaker would, he grabbed his camera and the first two men that he can find and grabbed them and pulled them aside and asked them what they were doing and where they were going. They replied, no idea, mate, in their thick Australian accents, but you are naked in the middle of this movement, he said. And they said, look, man, 
we came to see the running of the bulls and found all of these naked people heading that direction as he pointed at several hundred naked bottoms. We didn't really think about it, they said. We got here, we got undressed, and we joined the crowd. We are in week two of our Lent series, The Crowds. Pastor Matt kicked us off last week, and if you were here, you know our Lent series, They Don't Play. This whole season is a time of deep reflection and repentance. It's a time designed to not sugarcoat things, but to really look at the truth of where we are and where we are headed as we travel the road to the cross with Jesus. This is really kind of a, a sort of a social experiment, if you will, a look into one. We are looking at Jesus in the weeks leading up to his crucifixion and really setting our sights on looking at what the writers of the New Testament call the crowd. This literary language is intentional. They are making a clear divide among people. There were two groups of people, followers, disciples, apprentices, whatever word you want to use to describe that. And yes, I'm talking about the 12, but I'm also talking about so many more. You had followers, and then you had everyone else. And as Jesus makes his journey towards the cross, the crowds become smaller and smaller as the call to discipleship becomes greater. And really, we want to dig into that and ask the question, why? Why did so many walk away? And how can those of us who are followers now not follow that same road? Do we understand where we are headed or are we like those running naked in the streets, unaware of what we're actually doing and where we're actually going and we're just following those who are around us? Really the question is, are you in the crowd or are you a follower? Today, as luck would have it, we get to talk about money. Even more specifically, Jesus' straightforward words about greed as we look at the parable of the rich fool. Throughout this whole series, we are following the narrative through the writing of Luke. Of the four gospel writers, Luke has the most to say, and honestly, some of the harshest things to say about wealth and poverty. He chooses his material and organizes it in such a way that his audience would understand that how you handle your money and how you handle your possessions is extremely important to Jesus, and so it has to be important to us. It has everything to do with how we follow Jesus, and that's how we want to approach it today. Jesus was teaching to a large crowd. It says in the text just a few verses earlier from what Jenny read today that there were thousands gathered at this time, so much so that they were trampling one another he was teaching and then we get to our text for today and someone interrupts him and completely changes the subject. Teacher, he said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, this guy had some audacity. What an awkward situation that must have been. This would be like somebody interrupting me right now while I'm teaching and asking me a question that has nothing to do with what I'm speaking about, trying to bring me in on some family drama that they've got going on. Like, Okay, man, I hear you. That's definitely probably something that needs to be worked out, but this, it's not really the time. I'm kind of in the middle of something here. If you have more than one kid, then you know a version of kind of what this might have sounded like, all right? Mom, Ella has this thing. Get, tell her to give me some. Lainey, it's not sharing with me. Mom, tell her to give me some of this. But actually, there's probably maybe a little bit more to it than that. See, Old Testament law said that if there was a dispute about inheritance, that it could, you could bring that dispute in front of a rabbi and get a judgment 
on it to solve the matter officially. Like a judge in the case, the rabbi could rule on it and that would be binding. So while it wasn't the best timing, the guy was trying to get something accomplished that he clearly felt very strongly about. And Jesus pivots like only he can and addresses the man. He says that he has not been appointed judge or mediator in this case between you and your brother. So I can't give you a judgment that will settle this, but what I can give you is a lesson that you so desperately need. And then he gives a warning that the crowds had heard many times up until this point. He said, watch out, be on guard. This isn't a one-time phrasing for Jesus. He's given the people warnings that sounded like this many times, watch out, be on guard, or listen up, this is important. Just a few verses earlier, with this same crowd, he tells them to be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So I am born and raised um, in Oklahoma, and so with that comes the knowledge of the season that we are just about to enter into, uh, storm season. Thunderstorms, tornadoes, all the things. This is just a part of living here, okay? I'm not really a weather watcher. Um, I don't really pay attention to what's going on, so much so that people know that like, they're like texting me, are you watching the weather? Do you know what's coming later today? Are you prepared? Are, are, you, are you prepared? And so I'm just, I don't really pay that much attention. I'm used to it. My oldest daughter, Ella, does not follow this belief system, okay? She's got some undealt with trauma that she's gonna have to work through when she's a little bit older. I told her I'd pay for half of her therapy, not just for that, other things too, but... Um, <laughs> She's not here, so I can say more in this service. <laughs> um, but she, if there's a storm coming, she's aware of it, and she's gonna make sure that everyone else around her is aware of it. If Travis Meyer is on the TV, we better be watching it, okay? And she's in our bedroom making sure that we, we're watching what's coming. To be fair, Ella's the only reason that we were in the storm cellar during the infamous Father's Day storm that happened last year, and we really needed to be in the cellar. We had a lot of bad damage, big, huge trees that came down, so she'll never let us live that down, for sure. If there's a storm warning or a storm watch, she is on alert. And that's what Jesus is saying. Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. He says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus knew that clearly this man had a heart condition. But it wasn't just about him. By the time he gets to this sentence, he's speaking to the whole crowd, not just speaking to the man anymore. Greed for Jesus wasn't just a one-time event limited to this one interaction. He knew, again, it was a condition of the heart. The man desired for a settlement, and Jesus gives him and the whole crowd a warning about the state of our souls. Could there be anything more Jesus than that? Except maybe telling a parable, which is what he does right after that. Verse 16, and he told them this parable, amazing. A little, a little sidebar real quick on parables. Jesus didn't tell parables in order to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to invoke our imagination and invite the people to see what God was doing in, a wor in the world from a new perspective. He told parables to let people know about the kingdom of God what he came to bring. He wanted to let them know that the kingdom of God had arrived, that it was here, that he had brought it with him. And the kingdom of God had upside down values, that what you think is, has been most important up to now, I'm probably gonna flip that on its head. And that God's kingdom required a response. So why not then be more clear? 
If this message is so important, if this message is now and has arrived, why cloak it in this way? Through parables and stories, Jesus could make really bold claims and reveal truth to the people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, we hear him say so often. For those who had ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. And on the, the flip side of that, the stories would also conceal his message from those who were quite literally out to get him and, and to take his life. And so it gave him more time to fulfill his mission on earth for those who have ears to hear, he said. So parables helped to distinguish between the crowd and the followers. And so he told this parable, the ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for years, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Teaching on a topic like this is never easy. It hits each and every one of us in different ways. But my starting point for us in this room today is that we desire to not be like the rich fool. We want to be generous. We want to be self-giving and wise. And it's from that place that we dive in. Because although there isn't, I wouldn't guess a person in this room whose deepest desire is to be greedy and selfish, we hear the words of Jesus to be on guard. And we take that like Ella takes it when a storm is coming. This is not soft language. This is not a one-time event. This is a war for our soul and the idols that can so easily make their home there. Jesus said, through me is life and life abundantly. My way leads to this kind of life, but also it's narrow and few will find it. We want to find it. We have ears to hear, and so with those ears, we're gonna break down three simple truths. These are not profound things. These are simple things that we all know and we've probably heard several times before, but we're gonna hold it up before the Lord to till up anything in our hearts that needs to be revealed. Three truths that we can get out of this teaching from our rabbi Jesus. First is true life is not found in what you own. Storage facilities are a $38 billion industry in America. In 1984, the year I was born, shout out to all of us who are turning 40 this year, yes. There were about 6,000 self-storage uh, facilities in, in the nation. Now there are approximately 50,000 such facilities in the US with a combined storage capacity of 2.3 billion square feet. In other words, every one of the over 340 million Americans could simultaneously find a place to stand within our nation's storage facilities. What I'm saying is, is we really like our stuff, guys. The consumer culture that we live in is like the air that we breathe and the water we swim in. It's a reality that's so deeply woven into every single thing that comes at us every single day, every experience, and it's impossible to not be affected by it. And it's also extremely subversive, and we don't even notice it most of the time, like the air that we breathe. 
C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. The truth is that we have been pre-programmed to disapprove of this story from today. If we change the title of it and kind of switch around the context of the story, this man is a success. And we want that kind of success in our lives. Really, it's a story about the American dream. Success, wealth, having enough that we never have to be in need. And so it kind of stirs something inside of us of like, okay, well then where's the cutoff? We, we have to have money in order to survive in the world that we live in. And so the tendency is, as with everything else in our lives, we're trying to find the line. Okay, well how much is too much money? What is the number that I can have in my savings account without feeling greedy or selfish? How far is too far? What is being wise and what is being a good steward, which we all should be, and what is being foolish? And these are all really good questions, none of which I'm gonna answer specifically today, all right? As I've already mentioned, Luke has a lot to say about our wealth and our money, but his perspective may not be exactly what you think. Most scholars believe that Theophilus, who the letter was written to, was some sort of Roman official. The title that Luke gives him in the beginning of his letter states some sort of high standing. So he was most likely not a poor man, is what I'm saying. And also, it's very likely that Luke was relatively well off as well. He's believed to be a physician, and that isn't a meager living um, now or then. So Luke was not a poor man writing to poor people that together they could like rally, link arms, and like denounce the rich. It's much closer to reality to say that Luke was a rich man writing to another rich man and others like him in order to show how the rich could truly follow Jesus. So yes, we see many stories about, and straight to the point, warnings about the riches. The words are not minced here, but we also see examples of the rich catching the vision and using their rich as well. Tax collectors giving it all up and making it, making it right and following him. Other parables about those who have riches using them in the right way or a fair way. A good portion of the ministry of Jesus was funded by rich women, and a rich man gave Jesus a proper place to be buried. So it's not about how much stuff I have, it's about how much the stuff I have has me. It's not about how much money I have, it's about how much the money I have has me. The truth is you can be greedy and selfish with very little, and you can be generous and self-giving and have a lot. What Jesus is doing here and what we will look at all throughout this series is he's pressing on those places in our hearts where we want to stay Lord of our lives and we're not willing to hand over lordship to him. And if we're honest, for many of us in this room today, that place is our money and our possessions. You can press on a lot of things, Jesus, but let me handle the bank accounts. I'm all right with surrender here and in these places, but I'm gonna take care of the investments. I'm good with giving 10%, but generosity that really costs me, it triggers my anxiety. Because what about tomorrow? I've gotta be prepared. Matthew 6 says, do not store up 
treasures for yourself on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Jesus knows that wealth can oh so easily become our ultimate treasure. So much so that it is given a God-like quality and given a name, mammon, or the influence of material wealth was personified in this God of mammon and Jesus called this out. This is the only other God, lowercase g, that Jesus called out by name in his teachings while on earth, which gives us a glimpse into its importance and our risk of being seduced by it. Later on in Luke, he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or God and mammon. Money for Jesus was not simply a neutral tool to be used, but something that could master a person and become God of their life. It pulls our dependence away from the provider and onto ourselves, and really that's one of the biggest lures because we want to be in control, and we love to be in control, and so as long as we have a certain amount plus a nest egg, we feel good because we have that illusion of control over our lives. And so his press for us today and his press for the original crowd that day was an invitation into true life. Life and life abundantly, like we already said. Life that is not controlled by what I have, by what I own, because it's not found there. True life is not found in what we own. And true life is not self-centered. St. Augustine describes sin as humanity being curved in on itself. This is what happens with the sin of greed. It's a disordered desire, a disordered love, a love that has been turned in on itself, an affection that is not in its rightful place. Two things that we notice about the rich fool. There was no acknowledgement of God and there was no thought for others. So really the antithesis of the great commandment that Jesus gave to love God and love others. See, greed fixes our eyes to earth and drags us away from God. It changes our viewpoint in such a way that we don't even acknowledge God as our source and as our provider. You notice that man didn't acknowledge the source. There was no reference to God. It was the land that was rich. It was the land that produced the harvest and all the riches that he had in that point. And it, it wasn't him, but there's no acknowledgement of that. This is what greed does. It's mine. I earned it. I built this thing. I am due what is coming back to me. And because I'm the one that built it, I'm the one that earned it, I can do with it what I see fit. The fruit of this thinking is entitlement. Entitlement. 
And also, if, if I'm the ultimate source, if I'm the ultimate source and provider, if it's all up to me, then the fruit of that has to be hoarding. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we uh, did the teaching on the daily bread prayers. Our tendency as humans is scarcity and hoarding. There's not going to be enough to go around, so I've got to get mine and I've got to keep mine while I can. In this parable, there's no mention of others in this story. He says, what am I gonna do with all of this surplus? My barns are full and I still have more. What am I gonna do with it? And his decision was to tear down his barns and to build bigger barns so that he would never have a need, that he would never need another thing or another person. Andy Crouch in The Life We're Looking For says, the distinctive thing that money allows us its most seductive promise, abundance without dependence. The truth is, when we have enough money, we don't have to be dependent. We don't actually need earthly, bodily relationships. We can pay for things to get done. And so we can automatically tick over into this belief, which really is a lie, that we actually don't need God either. We may not ever say that, that may be way too overt here in the Bible Belt, but we say it with our actions and with our practices. We become blind of our true need because we are self-sustaining. We are self-sufficient and I don't need anything or anyone else. But true life, the way of Jesus is not self-centered, but self-giving. We are dependent on God as our ultimate source and designed to be interdependent with one another as the family of God. And it's a life that leads to radical generosity. We understand, as we say every single week, as we just said earlier today, everything I have, you have given me. This, all that I have, every single thing that I have, whether it is a lot or a little in the world's metrics, it was given to you by me. It has been entrusted to me to steward and it's all yours. It's not mine. It's all yours. Not just my tithes and offerings. Everything that I have, what I keep and what I give away. It's all yours, how I give, how I spend, how I save, how I invest, how I borrow. It's all a reflection of my discipleship to Jesus. This is what we see so evident in the first church in the book of Acts. No, we don't want to idealize the first church, but this is one of the things that made them distinctive. It set them apart the way they handled their money and their possessions. Each gave and shared so that no one had a need. No one had a need among them. Radical generosity is the overflow of a heart that recognizes the extravagant love of God towards me. Everything I have, you have given me. It's all yours anyway. It's not mine to keep. This is what the first church realized. They recognized we have been given so much through Jesus. We have been given so much through him. What other response do I have than to give everything I can for him, for his mission, for the kingdom? True life is not found in what I own. True life is not self-centered and this life is not forever. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? 
I'm good to go, he's saying. Kick back, put my feet up, just enjoy life. And this is not simply just a, an observation about some sort of like idealized retirement. There's more, it's more intentional than that. It's a calling out of hedonism. Hedonism is defined in that good is found in the avoidance of pain and the attainment of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure at all costs. Put another way, you only live once. So you gotta go out and get it. Eat, drink, be merry would really be a hedonist creed of sorts and really an American creed. The ultimate gain is what feels good in the moment, the pursuit of now. In this story, we would see that Jesus would define eat, drink, and be merry as the creed of the fool. God says, you're foolish. You don't have decades left. The very night that you are celebrating all of your security is the night that your earthly life is ending. Now who's gonna get all that you have prepared to be all for yourself? We know that this life is not forever, but it is but a vapor. But as, as followers of Jesus, this is not a scary thing. We have a promise. We will not only live once. There is a life beyond this one, and we are shaping our lives now to be living in that kingdom. We are living in that kingdom now and in the future, and that kingdom is ruled by a king. And so we're shaping our lives around what that looks like, and this looks weird to the world, understandably so. And this will set us apart. It will change how we live in every single aspect of our lives. That's what this whole series is. It will set us apart. It will make us distinctive among the crowd. Jesus calls, Jesus's call to the crowd was again to lose your life. Lose your life, lay it all down so that you will gain it. So that you will gain true life, the life that he is promising. He's trying to get to our hearts and capture our imagination to the true worth of the kingdom of God. It is the pearl of great price. It's worth selling everything for. It's the treasure that will never fade. He wants to set us free from this hamster wheel that is the spirit of mammon. See, the way we handle our money is a central practice, not a casual addition to our spiritual formation. Formation is all about who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? What kind of person do I wanna be when I'm 80 years old if my life lasts that long? It's got the long view in mind. It's not quick results-based. And so if we're seeking to be formed in the way of Jesus in every area of our lives, we ask questions around the topic of today. If I continue my current practices around money, what kind of person am I becoming? More generous? more self-giving, a more compelling disciple of Jesus? Am I becoming more like him or less like him? As followers of Jesus, there should be something distinctive around the spending and saving and sharing of our money. We should be distinctive among those around us as we just talked about the first church was. As people, as followers of Jesus, if someone could only see our bank statements, our credit card statements, and not know who we are, anything about us or what we believed in, what would they say we valued based only on that information? 
What I'm saying is there should be something distinctive among us from the crowd. And this is not to guilt or to shame, but an invitation for us to honestly evaluate our hearts for we know they are idol factories and we have to be on guard. Does Jesus have permission to press on this particular place in your heart? Would you stand with me this morning? Every week, as I already mentioned, as a part of our worship together, we say a giving liturgy. And it's forming us every week. It's forming our language and our hearts, our beliefs, every single week as we say that out loud. But what does that liturgy look like lived out? Anything that we profess to believe, that we say out loud, that we say out loud as a community, should find its way into an embodied practice in our lives. Otherwise, it's just words. And so, City Church, what does it look like for us to be living the giving liturgy? I wanna kinda walk through a few questions for us today just to evaluate our hearts. Because as Pastor Matt said last week, we are sermoned out. And while I believe in this, I believe it's important, it can be a spark, but what is really needed, what is really transformational is obedience, is stepping out and living out the words that we talk about here every single Sunday. So I wanna walk through some questions just to let Holy Spirit do what only he can do and bring up some things in our hearts. And like I said earlier, the, the tendency can be to kind of come back with some knee-jerk like questions, like, well, okay, well, but what if this, or surely it's okay if this, for now, for today. Quiet those questions, quiet your heart. Just pause and take a breath and reflect on these questions with a spirit of surrender, a willingness to pay attention to whatever comes up So those three questions are, am I fully trusting God with my finances and everything I own? Am I actively practicing generosity in my life, church, and relationships? And am I being a wise steward of what God has entrusted to me? So if you would just close your eyes for a moment. kind of lean into that posture, spirit of surrender. I'm gonna read them one more time, a little slower. Pay attention to what comes up. Pay attention to what your mind goes to. Am I fully trusting God with my finances and everything I own?
Am I actively practicing generosity in my life, church, and relationships? being a wise steward of what God has entrusted to me. you have permission. Reveal whatever you want to reveal today. We hold our life, everything that we have before you in surrender. What does it look like to truly follow you in this area of my life. It's my heart's desire to follow you. So what does that look like? Just remain here in this attitude of prayer as we prepare to come to the table together.